Revelation 2, verse 12, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, who was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And Father, we just want to humbly pause and ask that by your Spirit's grace, Lord, you would give to us the ability to continue now in worship by having an ear to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to speak through what he has spoken in the written word of God, that today, Lord, we can receive that word from you that we need individually and collectively as a con congregation. So bless your word, Lord. Our hearts are expectant. Speak to us what we need to hear today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. <clears throat> you know, to illustrate as an introduction this morning, let me just briefly define a few terms for the sake of an illustration as we go into our passage this morning. Cancer is a disease regarding abnormal cells dividing and growing uncontrollably, destroying the tissue and health of the body, which can then spread beyond the boundary, ultimately to other areas. Compromise, the second definition of it, compromise in the negative sense is defined this way, to make a dishonorable or shameful concession to make a dishonorable or shameful concession. And spiritual compromise is making concessions on the truth and the standards of God's word and God's will. It is a departure from truth as it is defined in the word of God by the promises, commands, instructions, principles of scripture, and it's leaving the principles of scripture. And it's a departure from what the word of God instructs, listen, in order to reconcile with contradictory ideas to God's truth that are being proposed by an erroneous human being. By a human being having certain ideas in their mind, certain perspectives that they hold, and to pacify their desire or to agree with their idea, or to give in to their view and submit to that, it's giving in to that error that in so doing, we override normal thinking patterns 
by choosing to make a concession and concede to their erroneous idea, which is abnormal because it is outside of the healthy truth and principle of the word of God. And in that sense, that will then bring harm to our spiritual health, and that unhealthy thing will then grow and spread within our lives or even within a church. And in that manner, spiritual compromise is very much like spiritual cancer. Spiritual compromise is very much like spiritual cancer, and we must be aware and beware of the cancer of spiritual compromise. And that's what Jesus is addressing in this next letter to one of the seven churches in our passage this morning. From the earliest centuries of Christianity and all the way through, every generation has to fight its own battles against the danger and the threat of the cancer of spiritual compromise that wants to pollute and destroy the lives of individual Christians and wants to pollute and defile and destroy the church collectively. In verse 12, look what it says as Jesus opens up now writing to this church. He says, and to the angel now, the messenger, we've talked about that term, to the messenger of the church in Pergamos, right. Now, Jesus next addresses another letter as he goes kind of almost in a cyclical fashion. If you look at the map of these churches that he's addressing here, he addresses now to this local congregation who is assembled or who their meeting location as a group of believers in the city of Pergamos. Now, Pergamos was one of the most prominent cities historically in Asia Minor. Two very predominant things we know about it. It was a place of great academia and very high intellect. Uh, we know that because many scholars gathered there. There was a great university that was established, and it also had historically the second largest library in the ancient world that consisted of over 200,000 volumes, which is a lot in a day when they're writing things on scrolls. And this huge library was there. It drew many great thinkers, many great scholars, philosophers of that day. It also was secondarily known to be a very religious society as a whole. In the city of Pergamos, there were multiple statutes and great temples devoted to idols, to Athena. One very great temple to uh, Asclepius, which was the god of medicine or the god of healing and had all kinds of bizarre practices. It actually is where we ultimately develop today. You've ever seen a little medical sign with the serpent going up the pole? Uh, that came from Pergamos and this god Asclepius that they worshipped where people would even go into the temple of this god and they would lay on the floor which had serpents crawling all over it and it was believed that if one of the serpents crawled across you that that was an indication that healing was going to come to you. Uh, and so some of these ideas stem even all the way back to Pergamos. There was the altar there and the the worship of the, the god Dionysus, and ultimately one of the great wonders of the world, one of the temples there, a grand temple to Zeus himself in the city of Pergamos. So this was a location in the Roman Empire historically that was known to be a center of philosophical thoughts, great thinkers, high academia, extremely religious, 
again, worship to deities, to idols. They even strongly held very firm allegiance there to Caesar worship, which was common during the Roman Empire as well, where you would go into these different temples and put a pinch of incense on the altar and proclaim Caesar is Lord, which was another way of saying Caesar is God. He's divine. Uh, he's the one who should rule over us as a deity. Now, here's what's very interesting. That word there in verse 12, if you look at it, Pergamos, the name of that city where this church was, that's actually a compound term, Pergamos. Per is a term that means objectionable or mixed. We have the term pervert, right? We understand what that means. Someone who in a mixed way, they've taken healthy sexuality and they've, they've mixed it and in an objection way, they've become a pervert. The word gamos, the second half of that word, gamos is really the word we get in English today, marriage. We have monogamy, polygamy, bigamy. So what that term pergamos actually is translated when you look at it, it refers to a mixed marriage or an objectionable union. That's the description of the term. Two things joined together that should not be in union with one another. And again, how fitting this is here, even for this local church that was beginning to struggle with some degrees of spiritual compromise. The Bible teaches that as the church, as the bride of Christ, that we're supposed to be married to Jesus spiritually. And because of that, it is always compromise when the church or any Christian enters into an objectionable union with the world system or the ways of other deities or other gods, if you would, spiritual infidelity when we're supposed to be married to Jesus and we're ending into an objectionable union, an unhealthy union with some other thing that contradicts our marriage relationship to Christ. Now, seeing this city and the society and the church dwelling there among it and the conditions of the church of Pergamos, it's what leads Jesus to now address them. And look what one aspect of his nature Jesus selects of the identity of himself. Remember, that comes from the glorified revelation of Christ in chapter one. He always draws one of these attributes as he was seen there in that vision as he addresses the churches and identifies himself. And the aspect of his nature that Jesus identifies himself with to this church, there in verse 12, it says that he says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, where Jesus is drawing that from, again, back in Revelation 1, verse 16, it says of Jesus, he had in his right hand the seven stars and out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. Now, when Jesus here draws attention to himself as the one who possesses the sharp two-edged sword, it is purposely meant to convey something to this church, just like it does when he addresses with some different attribute all the other churches. Roman soldiers used two different types of swords in their weaponry. They had what was referred to as the short sword or the smaller sword, which was utilized more for hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was something that really was kind of much more, we might almost envision, like a long dagger. And that smaller short sword 
was used basically to thrust and to pull in your enemy. So it typically was used in close hand-to-hand combat where you would pull it out, you would you know, pierce your enemy and pull it to a side, or where you would just with a quick slicing motion use the smaller sword. That's the term in both Hebrews chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about that the word of God is like the sword of the spirit sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's the small sword that's referred to there that would pierce in, that would slice, that would divide between soul and spirit, as the Bible talks about. That's the term that's used. Then the secondary sword that a Roman soldier also used was what was called to as the large sword or the larger sword. And this sword was a large, heavy sword that was worn typically over the back because it would many times be too long. It would drag on the ground if they put it off of their hip. And this larger sword took two hands to swing because of the weight and the size of the sword. So when they swung the large sword with two hands, the power of that sword brought a devastating blow to your enemy. Typically, it would sever a head or at times would just sever a limb or sever the entire body if they came right through the midsection. So interestingly enough, it gave a final judgment blow to end the life of your enemy. It's that sword that we find Jesus in the term used here referring to in Revelation chapter 1, as well as right here where Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he's not making a reference there per se to the same term used to describe the word of God. The reference he's making there is the same term that would be used to describe that longer sword, which would bring a judgment blow when it struck the enemy. It's the same term that gets used in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus is coming back at his return and he brings judgment against Christ rejecting humanity as he comes back as a warrior king. Revelation 19.15 says this, Now out of the mouth of Jesus goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So as Jesus here chooses this term to describe the sharp two-edged sword he possesses, He's representing himself in that image as the one with mighty power and great authority to pronounce a righteous word of judgment that will deal a severe blow to remove and put an end to that which is wrong, to that which is opposed to the will of God. That's the picture that Jesus is giving here as righteous judge with rightful authority to judge human and spiritual error, and look, that's important as it pertains to spiritual compromise. That Jesus, as the righteous judge, the one of all truth, would in a way deal very powerfully with the spiritual cancer of compromise that would defile the body of Christ, particularly when it is stemming from satanic influence which is what Jesus clearly alludes to, as you notice in the reading of our text, where he tells that location of the church was where Satan was dwelling and where Satan's throne was. And we'll talk more about that shortly, but look as verse 13 goes on, as Jesus, now the righteous king and judge, representing himself as a mighty warrior, says in verse 13 to this church, I know your works, 
and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. So notice Jesus begins indicating his awareness of their situation as a church, and we find him here initially commending them with what he was pleased with in regards to that local congregation. And we see this pattern in all of the letters mainly of Jesus here, where he commends something, and then he identifies something maybe that needed to be addressed or corrected. And so he begins by indicating he was aware of what was going on in that congregation, and he starts commending them. First of all, look at it in verse 13. He says to them, I know your works. In other words, Jesus wanted them to be aware uh, that he was fully acquainted with all of the good works that this church was seeking to accomplish for the kingdom of God, laboring in a very dark city, in a very dark culture to do what they could to spread light, to work to offer truth, to labor to help souls, to do what they could for the kingdom of God amidst a very dark city morally and spiritually and seeking to spread the light of the Lord in that dark culture. And he knew of their faithful efforts, what they were doing to labor for him. And he said, look, I want you to know I see what you're doing and I'm pleased with that. I know you're in a dark place, and I'm pleased that you're shining light for me. And Jesus commands all believers individually and the church collectively to really do that very thing, to be intentional in a dark world trying to do what we can through working for the Lord and laboring for the Lord for the kingdom of light that he rules over. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this to all Christians, you are the light of the world. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 26, where Paul was describing his calling of the Lord to serve, Jesus told Paul that he was to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. We know as well in Ephesians chapter 6, describing spiritual warfare and the battle between the light of the kingdom of God and, and the, the battle between the powers of darkness and the satanic realm. Ephesians 6 says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. See, this church was being commended for being faithful to work and to share light. And in the same way, we all as disciples have a calling from Jesus in our generation as well not to escape the darkness and not to spend all of our time complaining about the darkness. Look, if we shut off all the lights in this room and it was completely dark, let's say you can shout and complain all you want. The darkness ain't going away. The only way to get rid of darkness is to do what? Turn the light on. <laughs> and so we all have a calling not to escape the darkness. Our calling is to shine light into the darkness, to faithfully counteract darkness by working for the Lord and laboring to do what we can as the light of the world to let our light shine before men, to shine the word of God, to stand up for the word of God, to speak the light of the word of God 
in the dark world that we live in. Philippians 2 says it this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and do for his good pleasure, that is what pleases him. Then look what he goes on to say. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world among people, holding fast the word of life. So Jesus here is indicating how he was proud of this congregation and identifies his perfect awareness with what they were dealing with and exactly where their church was located at. You look what he says there. He says, I know your works, and then he goes on to say, and I also know where your church dwells at. And then he goes on to say where they dwell at. He says, where Satan's throne is, and then he says again for emphasis, the end of verse 13, and where Satan dwells. Jesus said in that city at that time, that was the current dwelling place of Satan himself. Now, I want you to take notice here by way of theology. This is helpful. Notice Satan is not sitting on a throne in hell in the lake of fire right now, barking orders and telling everybody what to do and orchestrating the punishment that goes on in hell as the leader of hell. The Bible teaches that Satan right now is roaming the earth. First Peter tells us, that we need to be aware of our adversary who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So right now, at this present moment, until Satan ultimately in his final judgment is cast into the lake of fire, he is actively moving throughout the earth in different locations, operating his satanic evil practices and Pergamos in that day was where Satan had apparently not only chosen to dwell, but set up his headquarters to rule and reign at that time. Remember, Satan also is not equal to or just like God. And we always need to remember that and be careful. Many times we want to make Satan and God equal. Satan was a created angelic being by God, just like every other angel was created and just like you and I as human beings are created. There is God, creator, and then everything and everyone else that exists is creative, inferior to God. And Satan himself is not equal to God, and therefore he does not have one of the attributes that God possesses, which is one of the attributes of God is omnipresence, which means that somehow in his greatness, God can be everywhere at all times. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And one of the attributes of God is he can be omnipresent in his greatness everywhere at all times. In other words, God's not limited by location. He's not restricted by locality, but it's created human beings. You and I as humans and the angels do not possess that attribute that God does. We can only be in one location at one time. And the same for Satan and all angelic beings. Now, unfortunately, at this time for the church of Pergamos, historically, Satan himself was dwelling in their city. And to dwell means that you settle down to take up residence, which means he wasn't just passing through Pergamos. I wish that probably would have been a much better case for them, right? 
He wasn't just passing through. He had chosen to settle down in that city. And even worse, Jesus, who doesn't mince words, he's being direct. He says, that's not only where Satan dwells, but look at it again, verse 13. He says, it's where Satan's throne is. So you want to talk about more than dwelling. He had set up his headquarters there. This was his base of operation for that season where he had set up his throne, having strong rule and influence in that city. And from there, at his base of operations or headquarters, is then not only bringing darkness and defilement and deception in that city, but was from there sending forth the demonic realm, the different demons who rebelled against God together with him in his departure and having great influence in a very dark way. I mean, you want to talk about a city that's truly dark, diabolical, defiled, I mean, a really bad city? That was Pergamos. <laughs> that was Pergamos, where Satan was dwelling. And I can't help but to wonder, perhaps you do too, I wonder where Satan is dwelling and where his throne is today. What city is it? Where is Satan today ruling in a sense, have where he set up his headquarters? I have a few ideas. I won't say them out loud. But you want to talk about a dark city. These believers were worshiping the Lord and walking with Jesus inside enemy lines. I mean, they were in a dark place, entrenched in a sinful, evil, dark, deceptive, aggressive city of darkness at that time, yet rather than run away from the battle and avoid the darkness, what do we see them doing? Jesus says, I'm so proud you're there holding your ground, that you're staying there and you're not denying my name. You're not budging on what's true. You're continuing to be faithful to me. Jesus said to them, I know that's where Satan dwells and he is ruling right there in your city but he says in verse 13, he says to them, but you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Jesus describes their loyalty to them, to him, their faithfulness to Christ and to true Christianity. Despite the pressures and the attacks, they remained very committed to Jesus. They kept honoring the Lord with great loyalty. They did not bow the knee to dark worldly pressures and voices of thinkers of the day and people who were recommending this and trying to sway the culture and that. Instead, they refused to compromise the beliefs of the faith, that is the Christian faith, the authentic Christian faith, that is sound biblical doctrine, as was taught by Jesus in the Gospels, as was expounded upon and taught further seen in the book of Acts and then in all the New Testament letters which give us New Testament doctrine. They stubbornly persevered and contended for the faith that was once for all handed over to the saints, that true gospel message of salvation, that a person is saved by grace, through faith, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone, as well as all other New Testament doctrines supplemental to that that make up what's called true Christianity biblically, biblical Christianity. There have been numerous times recently when I've been talking to someone in a counseling situation, and I just found myself saying, listen, here's what your struggle is. Your struggle is not this or that. or Your struggle is you're not living biblical Christianity. 
Oh, I got, I got, I got this. No, you, I really don't think you have that issue. I think your struggle is you're not living out biblical Christianity. Because this is what the Bible says about this, and this is what the Bible says about that, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit and a copy of the Word of God. And, and I love the fact that this church here so beautifully was holding on to that, and look, Jesus was so pleased by that. He was so blessed to see them in the midst of that that they knew the truth and were holding firm. And listen, folks, there will be times when the powers of darkness will be at work among us. And they are going to tempt us, and the powers of darkness are going to persuade and try and pressure us to compromise, and we must hold fast to loyalty to Jesus, to honoring him as the Lord over our lives, to upholding the truth of his word. And let me say this morning as an exhortation to all of us, never let anyone, anyone bully you into denying your loyalty to obeying the Lord. Never let anyone. And there was a time not long I was having a conversation with someone and, and, and they were just pushing, 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 pushing. And, and, and why, won't you, why won't you just do what I'm asking you to do? And I said, because I don't answer to you as a human being. I answer to Jesus. And you want me to do what you want me to do because you have a human fleshly idea how to solve your personal problem. And that doesn't, to me, align your approach with the Word of God. And so the answer is no. <laughs> You're free to hang up at any time you want. You called me. And we have to be careful because, listen, we can tend to think, oh, just the world. Listen, this spiritual bullying, because that's what the devil is. He's a spiritual bully. It can come in so many subtle ways, and I'm convinced at times that it may not even always come from the world, and we have to be faithful and loyal to Jesus and to the Word of God. This is what Jesus was so pleased with with this church. He says, you haven't denied my name, you've kept the faith, and Jesus was so pleased with that. It even indicates a specific occasion where he was somewhat, I think, almost doubly blessed that they didn't cave in. That's what he's referring to in verse 13, where look what he says, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even, look what he says, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus assures he was fully aware of what happened to this one particular man, Antipas, in the church, and again, we know nothing else about Antipas. We can't find anything in Scripture. We can only speculate. But Jesus knew him, and Jesus knew what he did, and he was very pleased. He, he gets his, his moment of praise from the lips of Jesus here, and Jesus says that there occasion arose where Antipas, who was a faithful martyr, the, the term there literally is a faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in some way, something happened where Antipas, this Christian man, took a courageous stand, bold as a lion, for Jesus, for maybe, you know, doctrine. We don't know what it was, but he took a courageous stand in his witness for Jesus, and the resulting consequence, Jesus says, is he ended up being killed or murdered for taking a stand for Christ. Now, 
I don't know about you, but what a beautiful display of devotion to the Lord to be willing to be faithful unto death like that. But if you remember our last study in the book of Revelation, what did Jesus exhort and encourage the believers of Smyrna, that severely persecuted church, to do? Glance back up in chapter 2, verse 10. The severely persecuted church that was around the synagogue of Satan, he said, verse, chapter 2, verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I'll give you the crown of life. That's exactly what Antipas did. He was faithful unto death. He literally was willing to allow himself to be murdered in his loyalty to Christ. Now, let's be candid. That's a pretty severe, unsettling challenge to anyone's faith, to any congregation. This man Antipas, among their fellowship, was actually murdered for his Christian faith. That would be a little bit unsettling, would you agree? Would shake some people's faith to the core, would feel a little bit of fear and intimidation, Yet notice, no one in the church wavered even when that happened to Antipas. It was almost as if they got more emboldened. It was almost like his heroic stand in courageous Christian devotion to Christ, it was like it stirred up a few other lines among them. <laughs> I'm going to stand for Jesus now. And Jesus said, even in the days of Antipas, when he was killed, you still didn't cave. You still didn't deny my name, and that's the emphasis he's making. And again, understand, at times, Satan is going to attack, and hard events are going to unfold, folks. And when Satan attacks, sometimes it will shake us or the body of Christ, maybe to the core once in a while. And there are going to be times where Satan works powerfully, perhaps to test our faith, maybe to make us become fearful and to challenge our loyalty to the Lord. Yet notice, Jesus was very blessed when he sees a group of Christians or a believer who is shaken, they're genuinely intimidated. They're, they're humanly fearful, but they choose to say, you know what? Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the understanding that something is more important than how fearful I am right now. And you stand for Christ. And that blesses Jesus. When we take a stand for the Lord, when we overcome our fear by faith, and devotion to Christ. Well, though the church collectively remained loyal to the Lord, Jesus does then go on, verse 14, to address something that concerned him regarding some evidence of initial spiritual compromise. Verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those, some apparently among them, who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. So Jesus indicates his concern, his disapproval, and even, as his words say in verse 15, his hatred of the tolerance among this congregation of what Jesus refers to as those meaning some, not the whole congregation, but there were those, there were some among them who held and promoted wrong doctrines, which were bad, dangerous, and really polluted ideas that would infiltrate the rest of the body. Some believers and teachers in the midst of the congregation who had erroneous doctrinal ideas, 
who had certain perspectives and views, ideas that would lead to, as Jesus refers to here, sin and compromise and unfaithfulness to him, the exact contrast of what Antipas and the congregation had done thus far, and these ideas would cause those infected by these ideologies to disobey the Lord, to enter into sin, to begin to live in compromise regarding God's will, and to stray off course. Interesting, 2 Timothy 2, as Paul described polluted doctrine and teaching, he referred to such as messages that spread like cancer. It's right in the Word of God. I don't have very creative illustrations, as you can tell. I steal them from the Bible. <laughs> messages that spread like cancer. And there were those that were doing this. So what were these teachings that were like cancer beginning to permeate and make spiritual compromise? Well, he mentions two things, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam is what he describes in verse 14. Those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So this horrible instruction of this man Balaam from the Old Testament that led to great spiritual compromise and to sin and to harm of people. We see the story of Balaam. If you want to jot your notes, Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And very simply, the Bible records for us how when Israel was going through conquering many nations and God was fighting battles on their behalf as they were following the Lord and they were in the plains of Moab, King Balak was threatened by the presence of God's people. And as he was threatened by the presence of God's people, he hired with his great wealth this man Balaam, who was a known prophet to some degree in that day, requesting that for a sum of money, he would come and pronounce a curse upon God's people, the nation of Israel. And we know the story, three times Balaam taking that money in his greediness, prostituting his gift of God for wealth instead, he went and he tried to pronounce a curse over the people of God. And every time he tried to pronounce a curse over the people of God, God's power overruled the powers of evil, and remember, a blessing would come out of his mouth over the people. And every time, God's favor and protection was upon his children. And King Balak was getting really incensed because he was not getting what he paid for. And he kept getting more and more angry, and Balaam said, look, I can't curse them. God's blessed them. I don't know what you, when he, well, what's it going to cost me? What do I got to do? I, I, if you can't curse them, what, what can be done? And then Balaam tempted again, more in his financial greediness, ultimately said, look, here's the best advice I can give you. I can't curse them because God's blessed them. But here's what you can do. You could get them to curse themselves. And he gave this idea, this teaching, this instruction that basically what King Balak should do, he said, look, here's what I want to recommend. They're a very religious people. They like religiosity. So take some of your most beautiful Moabite and Midianite gals and send them into the camp of the Israelites. And when they go in there, have them say, yoo-hoo. <laughs> if you like to try our practices, we have little meals and little things that we do and and then afterwards, the way we consecrate our idolatry is then we go back to the tent 
and you sleep and solidify your covenant with one of us temple priestesses in sexual relations. And, and, and they went into the camp and they proposed this and hook, line, and sinker the devil with his bait, wooed the children of Israel into this process, and sadly, they entered into sexual immorality and idolatry and dishonored God, and in so doing, they came out from under God's blessing, and they brought a curse upon themselves. And the Bible tells us 24,000 men of Israel died in this sexual sin and this idolatry. And Jesus, he refers to this doctrine of Balaam as those who taught the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality is a representation of ideas that lead people into spiritual compromise and into sin, guiding people in ways to get them to depart from the Lord, to slowly defile themselves. Basically, the horrible idea, if I could summarize it in this way, that as long as you believe the right things in your head about Jesus Christ, as long as you believe the right ideas in your head about Jesus Christ and you can quote Bible verses, how you live doesn't really matter. You can separate the two. Living for Christ, is that's negotiable. As long as you can talk a great game, as long as you believe right things in your head, that lie that you can separate somehow commitment to Christ and you can make exceptions and compromises and you can claim and believe the right things in your head but that you don't really have to follow exclusively Jesus or, or live and obey the Lord. I mean, that's, that's like a negotiable thing because there's blood of forgiveness for that. And where you need to, you can just make exceptions for your desires. And you can accommodate your preferences according to what you want to do. I mean, Jesus is eternal fire insurance, but you don't need to exclusively obey him. You can just adjust and make concessions and compromises as an optional thing and live really the way that you want. And look, the doctrine of Balaam is any type of instruction that encourages compromise in genuine Christian living that contradicts the word of God and what faith and obedience to Christ would look like. So, I mean, it can refer to anything such as, for example, using the analogy here, holding very loose liberal standards about morality in regards to sexual expression, where the New Testament doctrine on the subject, 1 Corinthians 6 says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, and do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, that's New Testament doctrine about sexual sin and sexual purity. Whether that's heterosexual sexual sin, a, a man and a woman who are outside the committed covenant of a marriage relationship in any form or fashion, whether that's homosexual behavior, whether that's whatever, you can, just, you can go on and on with the list as much as you want. But the New Testament doctrine is sexual sin is sexual sin. 
and that it's outside of the doctrinal teaching of what a Christian is supposed to live like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us the same thing, that we're to abstain from sexual immorality, meaning in all forms, and that we're to learn how to control our bodily vessels with sanctification and an honor. So whether it's in this area of sexual immorality or idolatry, which is devotion to anything over God, or listen, or whether it's any doctrine that encourages mixture or combination of worldly secular practices and ideas and bringing them into the way things are done within the church. That's mixture. That's perversion of how the house of the Lord is to operate, or whether it's permitting other faith ideas, interfaith ideas. So we're going to take a little bit of that religious idea and faith practice, and we're going to mingle that together and unify that with Christianity. Look, all of those things are an unhealthy, objectionable union, which is basically what the doctrine of Balaam was to encourage spiritual compromise, spiritual concession. You know, from a historical perspective, Jesus' letter here to the church of Pergamos speaks very prophetically to illustrate even the stage of church history from around 312 A.D. to around 600 A.D., which was the time period when Constantine came on the scene and forcibly made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. History tells us that Constantine's own testimony that when he was conquering in battle, said he had an experience and he saw a burning cross to some degree, and that after seeing that, he then says he heard a voice that said to him, in this sign, conquer. And so Constantine then interpreted this supposed experience that the Lord had called him as the next ruler to basically conquer by force through the power of the Roman Empire and to basically, under the sign of the cross in Christianity, legislate that everyone must become a Christian. And the state basically took over the church and began to run and operate. And look, when that began to happen, initially, that sounded great for all the Christians. Remember Smyrna? What was happening? Torture, death, brutality, persecution. Now the state loved Christians. Now religious leaders and Christian leaders were being given special perks and privileges by the Roman Empire. So now it seemed wonderful, but the problem was, is in so doing also, then all types of ideas from the secular world system and the state and the government began to come and to infiltrate the church, and I tell you this, folks, to this day, there's still problems because of that. To this day, there's still problems because when you mix together the world and the church, you get compromise. You get impure ideas and bad theology and practices that don't exist in the church. Jesus also mentions in verse 15 the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was going on, which he hated. Now, in the first letter, remember the church of Ephesus, Jesus identified there, remember he called it the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and he said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we can't be certain, as we said before, but the best understanding we can draw of what the Nicolaitans were is from the entomology of the word Nico and laity, if you break it apart. Nico, where we get our word Nike, which means to conquer or to dominate. And then laitans or laity, which means the people. So in some way, it seems the Nicolaitans were those who tried to set up a human spiritual hierarchy whereby some who saw themselves as more spiritual 
were trying to dominate and control the people in a way where they were set by themselves up as sort of a spiritual hierarchy that you can come to God through us. We can get your sins forgiven. We can tell you God's message. We, we can help you get to God. And Jesus saw this as a way of, in a sense, interfering between him and his bride, setting himself up as human mediators between God and people, which Jesus came to make that direct access. And Jesus said, I hate when people come between me and my bride. I don't want that going on. I want them to have direct access to me. Now, in Ephesus, some were doing it. In Pergamos, Jesus now calls it the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which means this. Now they embraced it as a theological belief. We need a priesthood. Now it was a doctrinal idea they had embraced. And Jesus said, now literally there are people operating in and among the church with this idea of that, yes, this is the right thing. It's a belief of Christianity. Now it was a doctrine within the church. When look, Jesus says here very clearly, that doctrine, I hate it. That's a strong word. Paul would say in the New Testament of his own ministry as an apostle of the Lord with clear spiritual authority, Paul would say, I have no dominion over your faith. I'm just a helper as one of the Lord's servants. Paul clearly wanted the believers to understand, listen, I don't control your life. I can't make your decisions for you. I can give you advice and input and counsel and lead you and guide you, but you have to submit to Jesus' authority and let him lead you and let him follow you at the end of the day. Well, look at Jesus' mindset in verse 16 of this dangerous compromise. He gives a strong corrective instruction and a warning to those involved in any form of compromise. He says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he gives a corrective word and a warning, again, to those involved in any, and I stress, any form of spiritual compromise. So whether that's holding wrong ideas and beliefs that contradict the word of God, that's compromise. Whether it's teaching and promoting wrong ideas spiritually that stumble and misguide the Lord's flock, or whether it's living in spiritual compromise, sexual immorality, idolatry, living in a form of, of sin that's outside the standards of God's word. Whatever form of spiritual compromise, Jesus with rightful authority says, here's my word towards spiritual compromise. Verse 16, he says, repent. And then he adds, or else. <laughs> and again, the word repent, we know it means simply to have a change of mind that leads to a complete change of direction or a total change of behavior. It means a change of mind in the sense that at one time you finally come to the awareness, at one time my thought towards this matter was completely wrong. I've been totally wrong the way I've been thinking. I have been completely wrong in my view, my idea. My thinking's been wrong, and therefore my wrong thinking has made me behave wrong. And so repentance is to say, I admit my thinking is wrong. I need to think right about this now. And therefore, I'm going to make an about face and go the right way and change my behavior in connection to that. And Jesus says the antidote for any form of spiritual compromise, repent. And then he says, or else, and I don't want to hear that, or else I come quickly and fight against them, that is those in compromise, with the sword of my mouth. In other words, Jesus saying, I will powerfully, if need be, come forth with great strength 
as the rightful judge and the glorious warrior king. And if need be, I will take a very strong stand and bring swift, righteous, disciplinary judgment if spiritual compromise is not dealt with. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. Jesus more than one time cleansed and cleared the temple pretty radically in the Gospels. And no doubt that's why Jesus says, verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says, notice, to the churches, plural. This is a message for all churches, that we would hear and respond if compromise needs to be addressed. And then Jesus encourages, lastly, to him who overcomes, we know that's a reference to the born-again believer, 1 John, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and a white stone, and on that stone a new name written in which no one knows except him who receives it. So Jesus gives a promise, an eternal promise, to those who overcome the satanic bait and pressure to compromise spiritually. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Remember, manna was that miraculous bread that supernaturally fell from the heavens down to the earth for 40 years in the wilderness that sustained the people of God. But every day they had to go out dependently, every day after day after day in dependent faith, and receive that manna for themselves. Eventually, Exodus 16 tells us that they were told to preserve some of that manna in a golden jar and put it, remember, into the ark as a remembrance of how the Lord sustained them supernaturally as they lived by faith. And then in John 6, what does Jesus say? That manna that your fathers ate in the wilderness, I'm the true bread of life. And in other words, Jesus here, no doubt, is reminding that his life alone is sufficient to sustain us forever. We don't need corrupt, crazy new ideas. Jesus is enough. He's the bread of life. And Jesus says to the one who overcomes compromise as well, I'll give him, he says there, the white stone. In those days in the jury system, when they had judicial matters being put in front of them, they would cast a white stone or a black stone. The black stone obviously meant you're guilty. The white stone as a form of innocence, declared your innocence, you're acquitted. And the idea was one indicated punishment, the other indicated removal of punishment, and you're, guilty, you're not guilty, you're acquitted and innocent. And look, Jesus says he'll give to each one of us as believers that stone of acquittal, declaring us innocent, that as we as overcomers continue to trust him and keep our faith in him, Though sin would condemn us because we've all failed and we all compromise from time to time, when you enter into glory, Jesus is going to give you the stone of absolute innocence with your name on it. Not just a general stone, a stone of innocence to say to you, yes, I know you compromised, stumbled, and failed, but because you trusted in me and the sufficiency of my blood alone, you are innocent. You are faultless. And you can walk around heaven for all of eternity. And if there were haters there, you could say. But you were a, but you were a, but you were a. But my stone from Jesus says cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Tony. And yours will say something like it. Let's stand. Let's pray together.